Good morning. How's everybody doing? We're looking at Ronin Rescue Cast number 22. And we're going to be talking a little bit about training and leading high-performance small teams. Because that's basically what we're doing. Even in the fire service where rescue seems to be a tertiary duty, once you get down to the, the nuts and bolts of it, as the team leader or as the captain in charge of that rescue station, you're responsible to make sure that your people are trained. You're responsible to make sure that they're led. A lot of times in the fire service, you're going to show up and you're going to be the subject matter expert. Unless you've got a battalion or an assistant chief that runs special ops, the, uh, the person on the ground, that incident commander, that first in rescue rig is going to be the one that's you know, running that show. When we get into things like industrial teams or search and rescue teams, you know, there's specific courses out there, for instance, in search and rescue for team leaders uh, in the industrial teams, that should be something that's looked at as well. So this isn't going to be the end all be all of it. This is just going to be some of our thoughts in regards to that training and leading that small unit rescue team. So what we're going to look at a little bit here is, you know, some health and well-being stuff, some optimization of performance, some planning and prep, that kind of stuff in regards to, you know, your training and your leading of this team. Now, there's a few things to think about as we go into this. You know, there's an old saying from the military, and there's going to be a lot of uh, quoting of military stuff because they're generally, you know, the premier people on the planet right now, depending, you know, on the country doesn't really matter, but that are running small unit high performance teams. And there's a saying out there from the military world, the slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And I think you're going to need to think about that a lot as you move through this. Um, there's a lot of examples we're going to give and just keep coming back to that thought. Um, and just as the overview here, some of the things that we want to think about, you know, your lineup. Who's on duty that day? Who have you got with you that day? Who's been tasked to do what? Because obviously the people you have, you need to employ them at the right areas and to their strengths. You know, can you take a, a more non-qualified personnel and use them in the system somewhere? Or are you going to have to wait to get those qualified personnel there? Thinking about things like when you talk about the fire service, doing a 360 when you show up on a fire scene, do the 360 of your rescue. You know, and like I said, these are all things just to think about as we move through this. So you got a good overview of what's going on. You know, have the plan, communications, and we'll talk a lot about this in a little more detail as we move forward here. Now, Axel Mance, buddy of ours over from Europe, has this um, XY graph, you know, regular XY style graph where the x-axis or the horizontal is gear and equipment, you know, going from basic to more extreme. You know, you can look at it from cost or whatever. And the y-axis is training and skills. And what he's talked about is there's a point in there where you get that KISS principle, the keep it simple, silly, stupid, whatever you want to add in as that last S, where the training and skills and the gear and equipment meet. And the interesting part about this is you see these pictures of, you know, guys that progress through careers. They show up and they've got like, you know, the new guy with like no gear and, you know, trying to figure out what to get. And then through the middle of their career, they got everything attached to them. 
you know, 14 different ascenders or, you know, four types of turnout gear with them or, you know, 17 backpacks. And as they move towards their end, as they start to get mastery on this stuff, they move back down to like, I got two items, right? And they do a million things with those items. As this training and skills go up, you know, you have to find that balance with the gear and equipment because not everybody on your team is going to be trained to the same level. Not everybody's going to have the same standard. And so you need to find gear and equipment that's going to suit the majority of the tasks for the majority of the people with an average training level. Now, we're talking about high performance teams, so let's push that training level up and call it a high level of training. We still need to find that simplicity of gear. We go and we do these Grimp Day competitions and we get into things like pike and pivots and reverse pike and pivots and we created slinky bridles as we called them so we could reset pike and pivots as we're moving patients through different elements of this. And then it just came kind of back down to, why don't you just put two rescuers over the edge and just lift the basket up and move it over the edge? And it was simpler. It required a little more manpower. It was manpower that we already had in play. But instead of trying to get all fancy and technical and using grillions in there to reset pike and pivot bridles and all sorts of other fun stuff, it was just one of these things where it was like, let's just keep it simple. Let's, you know, the gear and equipment, yeah, well less gear and equipment to create, you know, two guys over the edge on rappel ropes than it is for this, you know, kind of slinky bridle that we had created. Yeah, we need massive amounts of training and skills to do the slinky bridle. And it's not that you don't need the training and skills to have two rescuers over on rope on the edge. That needs to be practiced. It needs to be trained. We did an evolution last night with a department where, yeah, guys that aren't used to hanging out on rope and moving around like that, it can turn into a right royal goat screw as well. So there is training, there is a level of competence that's required. And it's like I said, it's finding that middle ground there. Just because you're a high performance team doesn't mean you need to have, you know, the most Uber of gear and, you know, th- like these training out the yin yang. It means that you're proficient and professional at what you're doing and you know how to solve problems. So with that being said, we're moving to like the health and well-being of the team. We need to know who our team is. You know, if you're search and rescue, then are you deploying with the same people every time? Work in fire, I have a regular crew on my rescue truck, but there's people that swap in and out because of whatever reason, holidays, acting. And so we always usually end up with the fourth man being somewhat new. So we need to incorporate that into our team. We need to make that fourth person feel like they're a member of the team and that they're included even though their training level isn't to the rest of the team. But the fourth member also has to perform at some sort of level in order to not bring the team down. It's definitely a culture and it's a culture shift that needs to be thought of. And when I talk about a culture shift that needs to be thought of, a lot of high performance teams are looking at things both from the military and also from like Olympic level athletes where you look at the preparation that's required and it's the mental preparation, it's the physical preparation, it's health. Physical fitness comes in a lot when you start talking about rescue. Even a simple little scenario where we're throwing a rescuer down over the edge on his own lines, make patient access, 
ascertains what we need, send another rescuer down with a litter or whatnot. One of those guys is climbing, our girls, is climbing out of that space or climbing back up to that edge. And there's some physical fitness that's required. They're rappelling down with a medical pack. They're helping move a patient. They're lifting. They're in awkward positions. And then they're ascending back out. So physical fitness and health is definitely something that needs to also be brought up when you're looking at things in regards to, you know, teams that are doing rescue. And so we want to look at optimizing that performance. There's science behind winning. And I use the term winning because it's the best one to identify what we're talking about here. We want a successful rescue. The best way to think about that is win. I need to win. As the team leader, I need the win. Whether that be picking someone off the side of a building, what does success look like in that case? What's a reasonable time frame that you as the team leader think that needs to be accomplished in? What are you people need to do? And once you outline those goals to yourself, winning then is meeting them in that standard. And the fire service always hates putting a time on something because they feel like they fail if they don't meet the time. It's an interesting concept and you look at it, I was looking at some auto extrication stuff the other day and it talked about the golden hour and everybody I'm sure here knows what the golden hour is and it talked about the time to reach the scene, you know, assess, extricate, you know, get a turn over to health services, have them transport into the hospital. And it basically gave you 20 minutes to get to the patient, to extricate them from that vehicle and get them into the back of an ambulance in order to meet that golden hour. And just because we move into the high angle environment doesn't really make that any different. We still, if we wanted to try to get into that golden hour, need 20 minutes to extricate that patient, whether that's confined space, whether that's high angle, whether that's trench. And obviously some of this becomes unrealistic, but does it? You look and go down, you pick a patient off, you climb your people back out. That can be a 20 minute scenario, a pick off on an edge. That can be a 20 minute scenario. The people need to be trained. That 20 minutes needs to be identified to your team and say, hey, if we're going to do this, if we're going to be those guys, those girls, and go out there and do this, then this is the standard to which we need to meet. And if mitigating factors you know, happen that you can't meet that standard, then you better be able to provide medical intervention in order to extend that hour. If you can't meet it, then you're going to have to fix it in order to extend your hour. And those are the goals or what should be the goals of this that rescue of the person. Rescue is really cool. Everybody wants to hang out there, look on rope. You got the helicopter flying above with the news camera. Yeah, I look real pretty on TV. But the goal is actually the person that we're trying to pick off the side of that building or the person we're getting out of that space or the person we're getting out of that trench. And trench on a tangent, 20 minutes to dig someone out, that's a whole different set of ball game. That's not a 20-minute evolution, but you know, how many trench rescues versus recoveries when we get into that. So these are things you want to look at when you want to optimize performance. We want to be prepared. You want to be ready to go at the beginning of shift or at the beginning of this task. You want to show up trained like an athlete. You want to be physically ready to do this and the stresses that this is going to put on the body. So in regards to stresses, 
there's a lot of people out there that are saying like a three month like competition plan or a preparation for deployments is, you know, kind of the the norm to go. That's the length of time to get people physically fit, to get people, you know, skill wise and prepped. So if you're changing stations in the fire service every year, you're going to have a lag in that first three months of what needs to occur. If you're in a SAR team, you know, and you're changing up personnel, if you do a certain percentage of change, you know, you're going to need a three month window in order to get that team back to optimization. So with regards to that, there's also, you know, leaving no doubt, what's your commitment to a pre-planning? The big word I come out of this is visualization. Your people need to be able to visualize every step of the rescue for the position that they're in for this planning and preparation phase. If I say, Billy, you're going to be the rescue one, you're doing patient access, Billy needs to be able to think in his mind and go, okay, I need to grab the med pack. Do I know how to use everything in that med pack? What's in there? He needs to be able to visualize that. I'm going to put two ropes into play. Generally, how am I going to anchor these ropes? What am I going to do with this? And visualize that. I'm going to use X device, my clutch. <laughs> I had to throw that out there. To repel in. I'm going to use an ASAP lock on my safety line. You know, what's that edge transition look like? If I got a high point, if I got a low point, he needs to be able to visualize all those things. And that's part of winning. You know, your rescuer too, if you're sending them down with the litter, Billy gets to the hole, calls up to Sally, who's rescuer too, and says, I want a spec pack, or I want a sked, or I want a titanium basket. Sally needs to know, okay, this is what I need to do. Am I going to have to go horizontal or vertical? What kind of bridle am I going to put on this? Am I going to use prussic sand to jigger at the end in order to be able to move horizontally to vertically. Sally needs to be able to visualize all of that portion of it. Before we even step foot on the training ground, those people need to be able to visualize that. And you as the team leader of this team need to be able to whiteboard this for them, need to be able to go out and actually have it rigged and set up so they can walk through that system before they touch it, before they rig everything and see this is what, when I say go, the end state needs to look like. Because if we don't know where we're going, we're never going to get there. So yeah, that needs to occur. Visualization is huge. Performance. I mentioned it before, the fire service doesn't like to put time against stuff. We need to start. We need to look at this and go, start to finish, what does this look like? And like I said, 20, maybe 30 minutes, depending on your distance to hospital. If you want to get into that golden hour, you look and go, I arrive in five to seven. I take maybe five to ascertain the problem and five to set up. I'm 20 minutes into this problem. I take 20 to 30 minutes. That's 40 to 50 minutes now, total time. That gives ambulance 20 to 10 to 20 minutes to get that person into a hospital room. That is tight timings. If I can't take 20 or 30 minutes to do it, I need to ensure that I've got medical interventions that can delay the onset or, you know, stop the progression of symptoms in order to increase that window. And if I'm from an area where, you know, I don't have ALS able to move into that, then I better be able to have a plan B where I put ALS into that situation. So these are things you need to think about. You need to have the answer to this question before you show up to the top of that building. Build upon what you're good at. 
Go out and start, see what people are good at and build on that. Yes, you want people cross-trained. That's part of a high-performance team. Anybody should be able to fill into anybody else's role. You know, we get off the truck, Billy sprains an ankle. Billy can't wrap over the edge anymore. You ain't rescuer one, you're rigger one now. Or you're rigger two. Or heck, you're the team lead because you're going to stand there and the team lead's going to shuffle over one. Everybody should be able to slot into somebody else's role. But obviously, when we start that first, like I said, three-month window where we need to get this team up to speed... We need to start with what they're good at, visualize, move through all the scenarios, and then start changing it up. And you need to ask your people, what's their commitment to our performance? If they're not committed to the successful outcome of that team's mission, they shouldn't be there. And I get it. That's easy to say and tough to do. The fire service, especially where I'm from, is a lockstep seniority system. I still have the ability as the station officer, as the rescue captain, to make your life absolutely miserable until you leave. And if that's what it takes because you don't have the commitment to our team's performance, then that's what I need to do. Because I'm cheating the rest of the people if I leave a slacker on my team. So when we talk about um, what's your commitment to performance for that individual, health and well-being, working out. Make sure your people are working out. Make sure that they're doing these types of things. They're prepared and planned. They have the performance to do it as well. And this is also where you kind of look at things like, you know, cross-training. If your rescuers show up and all they're trained to do is pick people off the side of buildings. The day we can't pick somebody off the side of a building because of some weird obstruction or some other problem, we're going to be a full stop. Rescuers need to have multiple rope experience. You know, people are going to throw stuff at the screen, I'm sure, over this. But at the end of the day, I firmly believe it. If you are a rope rescue technician, you need to know some confined space. There are skills and tricks in confined space, even if you never enter a confined space, that are useful in high angle scenarios. Artificial high directionals coming to the you know top of my mind right away. Go out and rock climb or indoor climb one day a month if you're a rope rescuer. Use ropes in a slightly different way. You're tying in. They're dynamic, not static. You're getting comfortable on edges. One of my previous podcasts, we talked about teaching one of the fire departments tower climbing. And I said, you know, I think I had the term in there, monkey fornicating with a football. If you're out and you go and even indoor climb and you're just doing a, you know, a bouldering wall, getting used to the body mechanics of moving yourself up the wall, bouldering, doesn't matter it gets you used to that body mechanics. You need to have that cross training in order to be an effective rescuer. You need to understand those components. Go take a mountain rescue course. Go take a rope access course. The more I deal with rope access, and I'm not trying to get, you know, credits back from Sprat or anything, but having rope access training provides a high level of individual skill to that rescuer. Ascend and descend, ascend and descend through a knot, ascend and descend through a rebelay, ascend and descend, and now it's kind of turn it on its head, vertically climbing or horizontally aiding. Those are things that 
are musts for an NFPA rescuer or for a mountain rescuer, whether you're doing it on you know, mechanical devices, whether you're doing it on Purcell Prussics. If you can't do a simple rope course hanging in the rafters of your shop or of your station or of your SAR base, how do you negotiate a difficult edge with a patient when they're hanging below a, a roof edge or over a parapet or something like this? It's a must. So, once again, to sum that up, self, physical, mental, those are the things that everybody on that team needs to have done. Moving forward, get some knowledge in your area. Take some pride in what you're doing. And when you talk about optimizing your performance, you know, these are things we talked about health. With health, go nutrition. Learn something about it. When we talk about health, we talk about sleep. Learn something about how the sleep deprivation will affect your performance if you get called out in the middle of the night. And when we talk about skills, read as well. Get some podcasts. You know, just off the top of my head, when you look at some of these skills, we can look at things like reading books on, you know, The Men, The Mission, and Me by Peter Blaber. I think that's his last name. Uh, Ex-Delta guy. And it's just on leadership. For a team leader, you know, learn from these people's mistakes. Extreme ownership from a guy like Jocko, obviously. But then get into your own stuff. Oklahoma Rescue by, I think it's John Hansen, talks about some of the logistics and just the time in regards to the Oklahoma City bombing. 3,000 Degrees by Sean Flynn. There's one thing that stands out to me in that book. When the battalion chief stood in the door and wouldn't let anybody else go in. He knew when to stop the rescue, like when to shut it down. I mean, I can't imagine what that took. I mean, that's just incredible. But as a team leader, we're not all going to have Oklahoma City bombings and Worcester, you know, storage warehouses or be dropping in on the X and doing three follow-ups a night because we're a tier one team operating for four months straight in Iraq. We're not all going to get those experiences. So find people that have them and talk to them. Find the books they've written and read them. These folks here, they're the ones that you know, have done this and learn from their mistakes. Listen to a podcast when you're traveling to and from work and even other stuff when it starts to get into the mental and physical stressors on the body and how to deal with it. Stuff like Unbeatable Mind by Mark Devine. You know, these types of things. Ascertain how these folks dealt with it, the science behind it, so that you can understand it before it occurs. So a couple of the other things when we break into that is the, uh, you know, Google things like the Tadmus principle or the said principle. Now, in regards to that, the Tadmus principle, just as a, a high level overview of it, tactical decision making under stress program study. And I'm just going to read the abstract. It's a joint NOSC Naval Training System Center program aimed at development of aids for decision making in low intensity conflict. Uh, it describes an experiment to satisfy a task one, including performance standards, measures of performance, administration of experiments, data reduction, blah, blah, blah. Basically, what this thing is, is a study on how to make decisions under stress. You can't tell me that going to a rescue 
is not making a decision under stress. So learn from other people that have done studies in this. The said principle um, is another one to look into. In physical rehabilitation and sports training, (laughs) well read, the said principle asserts that the human body adapts specifically to impose demands. It demonstrates that given stressors on the human system, whether biomechanical or neurological, there will be a specific adaptation to impose demands, said. For example, by only doing pull-ups on the same regular pull-up bar, the body becomes adapted to this specific physical demand, but not necessarily to other climbing patterns. Thank you, Wikipedia. This is where I talked previously about cross-training. Get the body used to different demands on it so that when you have to shift from a plan A to plan B, you are mentally and physically prepared to do that. The only thing that's permanent is change. I don't know where it was from. It's a good old expression, but that definitely exists in things like this. So take a look at those things. Discuss them with your team. This should not be information that's just locked into the team leader's head that only the team leader gets to see. The entire team needs to know how to get to these end goals. So, once again, that brings us to optimizing our performance and health. And we talked, you know, about experience now, stress, and the physiological response to that stress. And there's going to be things that affect this. Fatigue, recovery time, health, your fitness, your tactical, technical prowess and skill level, your psychology, your nutrition. That all tracks human performance. And the way to help your team get through this is to train with the addition of stress. Don't start there. Get your visualization. Start to visualize in your challenges. Start to train to those challenges and slowly ramp it up so you add those stressors into the performance. Also think about providing orders sessions. And I can't think of a better word. The military does a great job on it. Things like warning orders. I'm going out to do my recce, recon for our American friends of my situation, my size up for fire department terminology. I can give a warning order to my team, a military warning order. You don't have to follow it. It's enemy mission, timings, no move before, um, special things at administration. These can be tweaked for your team, but your team has to know about them. Well, the enemy in this case might be things along the lines like fall hazards or atmospheric conditions. You know, what the mission is. Hey, it looks like we got a guy hanging on the side of that building. We're obviously going to be picking him off. All right, I'm going to go do my, you know, recce. I'm going to go do my um, scene assessment. It's going to take me five minutes. I need you guys to, you know, get certain kit together. There'll be no move before five minutes from now, you know. By the looks of it, we got a bit of an overhang. Maybe we want to bring an HD out there for some specialized equipment and, you know, any sort of admin point. So the team has something to do while you go and do that initial recce. As plans change, in the military, we used to call them get They were quick orders when we came under contact. We'd have our immediate action drill, your double tap, double tap, dash down, crawl, observe, communicate, sites, fire sort of thing. And then the uh, section commander, incident commander, I'm getting my... uh, my sessions here mixed up. Section commander, a lot of times squad leader in the States would then give a get em, which was group enemy task and a movement order. Get are good if you can change it up a little bit. Once again, your team needs to understand what you're doing here if you need to go from a plan A to a plan B. 
hey, you know what, plan A is not working. All right, you know, team, we've got a problem here. Plan A is not working. This is how we're going to change this. This is what your task is going to be. This is how we're going to move forward and do it. Quick, concise orders. I loved it this year at Grimp Day. Uh, Jay Heinsen was our team lead. He would go out and do his recce, and he would leave a little warning order for us. As a team, we would sit there. We would start to spitball this, start to visualize what needed to happen. He would show back up. He would provide any relevant details that we couldn't see from where we were standing. We would feed back to him, Roger that, this is what we were already thinking. He would insert, okay, because of these relative details or relevant details, what if we change direction and do this here? Yeah, we're good to go. It was like literally a 30 second brief, but we're talking about a team that has worked together for years, has trained together, has a high level of competence, and is multifaceted in regards to training. Everybody there is mountain. Everybody is um, confined space. Everybody is rope. Everybody can climb. You can intermingle pieces of that. Everybody is a qualified team lead. And it's not that you need to step on your team leader's toes, but when he comes back or she comes back and goes, all right, what do you guys come up with thus far? Great. These are some relevant details that might change your thing. Chat it out. Kind of where you go. Obviously, the team lead has the final say. Yeah, boom, this is what's getting done. Or no, I need you guys to change on this. But that's part of that high-performance team. So coming up with a small orders session that works for your team is huge. So fatigue will play into this. Whether it's a call at night, whether you've had a bad day the day before, as the team leader, you need to ascertain the fatigue of your members. If you're doing multiple calls... This comes in a lot in things like when we do Grimp Day competitions where we're running five events a day and then the next day we're running another five, you know, et cetera, so forth. Rotating your people through, making sure they're fed. That brings us into nutrition. Make sure they've got water on board. Make sure whatever quick snacks they have, that they're getting food on board. As a team leader, these are things that you need to think of as well. We also need to understand there are things out there that we cannot control. We can't control the time and place. We can't control the patient, whether they listen to us, whether they watch us, whether they know us or like us, we can't control that. We can't control the curse of knowledge. Old experience maybe doesn't understand the new ways, the new people not understanding the experience. We have preconceived notions. We can't control that. There may be favoritism. We can't control that. Emotions, we're going to have fatigue, temperature, repetition. We're going to have the baffled by BS thing. What the heck are we doing here? Right? You get an a incident commander that comes in and now your team leads running as ops. And they decide that they don't like your plan and they're the ones who decide to alter it. Um, a good example of this, I had a person in a tree, it was recovery, the person was HIV hep C positive, they were bleeding out, they had done a brachial cut with a chainsaw, they were dead when we arrived. My plan A was cut the tree down. Why would I risk a single rescuer for that? The person that was in charge on that scene, my battalion chief, was not very fond of my plan A. My plan B then had to come into play because plan A was ixnade right there. I don't know why, need to know why. I mean, I have some ideas, obviously, why they ixnay that plan. 
But at the end of the day, I have to move forward. My team needs to readjust and move on. So another important part of this is the psychology of it. And it's the psychology of it for the team lead and the team. Owning your strengths and weaknesses before you even begin. You need to know where you're good. You need to know where you're bad. And your ego can't get in the way. You know, you go to the team lead. Hey, I'm not feeling 100% today. I can't be rescue one. Or could you find someone else to be rescue one? Going down there and screwing it up and killing somebody or yourself or a teammate or a patient because you were too big to stand up and go, hey, I'm not on my game today. I need to be somewhere else. You know what I mean? That has to be a priority. Everybody has to be honest with themselves. Because once we move forward with that mission, the mission needs to be successful. I mean, we, we have the old term, die first, then quit. Once we decide, you know, and even if we have to change plans, we can't give up at that point. Nobody else is coming, right? We are it. There is no one else. So once we move forward, we, it has to be with our best foot forward. So basically... You have to execute the best decision at the worst possible time. And that's not just your team leader on a high-performance team. That's every member of that team. So, failure and recovery. Crap ain't going to go right every single time you do this. You're going to get to somewhere, hey, that was just awful. You know what? We screwed that one up. We delayed that. We hurt somebody. It's going to happen. Be prepared for it and be able to sit down with your team and have an honest conversation where we're not pointing fingers or getting lawyers involved, where we can sit down and go, hey, we screwed the pooch on that one. We need to up our game here. We need to train on this here. Or, you know, this piece of the puzzle was missing back there. So that's definitely something to think about. The other part, and it's not really a failure, but when we talk a little bit about recovery, we're talking about recovery from failure, but also from recovery as you're moving through your rescue. If you've got a multiple patient rescue, for instance, you're going to get the first person out, you're going to get them loaded up, and you're going to have that adrenaline crash. You're going to go down a bit. Then you got to go back to work. Your team leader needs to identify those crashes And they need to make sure that the team members understand what's going on and help them through that. Hey, you know what? You just got a bit of an adrenaline crash there. Why don't you get some water, throw some food downrange, take 30 seconds, take 60 seconds to yourself. You know, think about what your next step is. Do a little visualization on how you're going to move forward with the next part of this rescue. You know, that has to be understood and that has to be looked at. So that leads to the last thing with the team leader. You know, the military called it pace planning, which was primary alternative contingency and emergency plans. Call it plan A, plan B, call it Murphy's Law, call it whatever you want. There was an old saying that, you know, the enemy gets a vote or seldom does your initial plan survive enemy contact. It's all the same thing. It basically means that the situation, both, you know, geographically and including the patient, they all get a vote when you're making a plan. But when you're making the plan, you're not taking their vote into account. So once you go over that edge and the geography's snotty or the rain starts coming down or it starts snowing because we're up here in Canada, 
or the patient decides to be problematic because they actually want to kill themselves and they just don't want to be hanging on the side of that building. Or as would happen to a friend of mine over at another fire department, they decide they want to get rescued and leap at you instead of letting you put a harness around them. The patient gets a vote in this. And as the team leader, your number one job after the training and preparation of your team is that employment of them and ensuring that you have alternative or contingency plans ready, that you visualize. When we talk about, you know, your rescue ones visualized what they're doing, they need to start visualizing as well those contingencies. Patient lunges at me, what do I do? Patient doesn't want to let go, what do I do? And the team lead needs to visualize and play that out, even if it's on a night shift or, hey, you know, it's a snotty night outside, it's snowing, we're not going to go outside and hang from rope or dig holes tonight or four stores. We're going to sit down, we're just going to run some contingency planning visualization. All right, rescuer one, patient lunges, what do you do? Okay, visualize, sat through all the steps. Team leader, what do you do? Okay, you got two person on this line. Are we rigged for two people on this line? You know, do we have the devices? There's certain things we're going to have to add in there. Billy, you need to add in a friction carabiner. You got two people hanging on you. Things like this. Visualize it through. Draw Even draw it out if you need to so that you have these alternative plans. And if you've got to hit a plan B, then plan C better be percolating in the back of your mind and pushing its way forward. And you might be thinking about a plan D. When I had the person stuck in a tree, won't get into all the geography that was around it, but needless to say, getting above the person was difficult. The way they had limbed trees, what was left to deal with, what have you. You know, plan A, cut the tree down. Plan B, climb the tree. Plan C, put artificial high directionals on corresponding roofs to make a high line above what was left of the tree in the backyard. That starts to get really convoluted. Plan D, hadn't started thinking about that one yet. But as I'm thinking plan C, if I have to move into plan B, I better logistically start getting the plan C stuff ready. I need two artificial high directionals. I need, you know, confined space equipment here because for us, it's going to be tripods or pteradapters or vortexes or whatever we're using. I've got some spare swing and dicks on scene. Let's get them moving stuff into position so that if I need to move into that, we can start, you know, winning because that's what we're looking at doing. So to end all of this and, uh, you know, like I said, it's just some random thoughts from us on this. It's from Fully Involved. It's um, guys on Facebook. Great to look at when you're in the fire service. Got some really great thoughts. If you're out there and ever hear about these, I'd love to chat with you. And this is a straight quote from him. There's a way of doing things that spoils the ending for us every time. It's about having a standard of performance that is communicated and understood from the bottom of the organization to the top. It's called preparing to win. We just can't show up and say, hey, I think we're going to win today. That's not how it works. When we are preparing to win, we practice hard and set goals for each training session. We don't go out and simply go through the motions. We don't phone it in. We set our minds on winning, even in the drill ground. Practice is where we develop good habits. We must train proactively in any situation. We have to know how will we react to any given circumstance. We can't guess. We must practice for every possible scenario so we don't get surprised. We train to the point where we can anticipate what is going to happen next. Last thought on that. Have a member of your team 
evaluate you when you're doing your scenarios. It helps them anticipate what will happen next. And with that, have a good day.